Hear Weill Cornell Medicine's physicians and healthcare providers. Check out the entire podcast library at weillcornell.org slash podcasts. Welcome to Weill Cornell Medicine Cancer Cast, conversations about new developments in medicine, cancer care, and research. I'm your host, Dr. John Leonard, and today's topic will be clinical research and cancer advocacy. I'm really happy today to have my friend and colleague, Dr. Monica Bertignoli, here as our guest. Monica is the current president of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO. And ASCO is really the world's leading professional organization for those caring for people with cancer. She also holds numerous leadership roles in a variety of different multi-institutional cancer clinical research consortia, including uh, her service as group chair of the Alliance for Clinical Trials in Oncology. And the Alliance is a cooperative clinical trials group funded by the National Cancer Institute that really runs many of the practice-changing large national trials uh, that change cancer uh, treatment. So uh, really a very high-impact role. Dr. Bertignoli is also the Richard E. Wilson Professor in the field of surgical oncology at Harvard Medical School and a surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. So, Monica, thank you so much for joining us today. I know your schedule is is crazy with all of your busy roles, so it's great to have you here. John, thanks so much for inviting me. One of your roles right now is, as we alluded to earlier, uh, leading ASCO. And I think, um, you know, ASCO for people working in cancer and certainly uh, oncologists of, of various specialties certainly know uh, know a lot about ASCO. And ASCO does so many different things to help patients, to help research and, and clinicians, and, and obviously has, uh, in part, one of the big contributions is the annual meeting, which is, I presume, the biggest oncology meeting in the world, probably, where so many breakthroughs get presented. But maybe if you could just take a second and kind of give the audience who may be less familiar with ASCO um, kind of the a, a sense of what ASCO is from your perspective and, and the different ways it helps uh, people with cancer or cancer research and advocacy. Sure. Well, ASCO has 45,000 members, um, of which about a third of them are actually outside the United States. So it's uh, truly an international organization. And its members are clinicians who take care of patients with cancer. So, you know, ultimately, the organization exists to help doctors and other clinicians take better care of patients with cancer. ASCO has a website that's devoted to communication and education and engagement with patients. It's called cancer.net. So anybody who's interested in information on a really large variety of topics can go to cancer.net. The organization itself, though, uh, really focuses on, as I said, supporting the clinicians who take care of cancer patients in three main areas. First and foremost, education, making sure that all of our doctors, nurse practitioners, physicians assistants have the very best information that they need, most updated information to take care of their patients. Um, The second is research. Um, We're never going to get where we need to be in terms of combating this disease without without great research, and so ASCO as an organization tries to support its members to be able to participate in research. And then finally, um, although it's 
you know, maybe not thought of as much as it should be, a lot of benefit can be achieved by just supporting our doctors to be able to deliver their care of the very highest quality. Yeah, it's it's really uh, incredible how uh, complicated uh, cancer care and cancer research has, has gotten. And I think, I mean, you alluded to the number of people, the size of the meeting, the number of presentations, uh, and the number of programs that ASCO uh, has to, to serve and contribute to all these areas um, is really is really incredible, and how a physician in practice can uh, keep track of everything that they need to know to take care of each patient that comes into their office seems to me to be a great challenge. And ASCO is a, a big part of helping people uh, get the information they need. You can come up with uh, probably a hundred different now categories of expertise that has been pulled into the the great richness we have in trying to tackle cancer in whatever way we can. So so each ASCO president has kind of a theme of their, I guess, their presidency and certainly things that they want to highlight. And yours uh, is caring for every patient, learning from every patient. And um, I'm curious to hear about kind of why why you pick that or how that sums up your priorities and maybe an example or two of how uh, you think that, you know, over your time, you know, in leading the organization, which is more than one year, I know, uh, how, you, how you think uh, ASCO will advance that, that mission. A huge amount of knowledge has come to us by the very rigorous science of doing cancer clinical trials. But the reality is that 97% of patients who are treated with cancer have no information shared on them that is used to develop new treatments. So 3% of our population participates in clinical trials. The other 97%, we, we don't have the ability to learn from them or learn from them efficiently. Um, that's just wrong. Um, the other thing that's very wrong about it is that the people we do have information on largely because they're participating in clinical trials tend to be affluent, tend to be located in the big urban centers, tend to be white, uh, tend to have insurance. All of the other absolutely important parts of our population that are, are, are left out of, of knowledge. How can we take the best possible care of people if we don't have their data, if we don't understand quite directly about them and what happens to them when they get their treatment. Finally, the biggest inspiration, I think, of wanting to have shine a focus on caring for every patient, learning from every patient. From time to time in clinic, a, a patient will tell me, you know, Dr. Bertinoli, I, I really hope there is something about my experience that you can learn or use to help somebody else. And uh, sometimes I've been able to say, yes, you know, you're participating in clinical research, you're on a clinical trial, but the majority of the time, I, I feel like I failed them because we, we really don't have a way to learn from every single patient. So I think we can make this a mission and we have some ideas about how we can bring this about. I think it would be an absolute revolution in healthcare if we figured out how to bring this knowledge to bear on, on making the world better for cancer patients. How do you guide patients 
um, you know, people read, you know, in the news about issues around privacy, they uh, hear about, you know, industry influence, all these different things. And then we have our clinical right. trials that have uh, a lot of challenges to enroll because it takes time and effort and extra tests and requirements and so on. How do you tell a patient just some advice around how to to get through this process, to learn about this process, and at least, uh, you know, we don't need, you know, 80% of patients to go on clinical trials, but if we took that 3% and took it to 10%, that would be a huge difference, for example. So what's kind of your advice to, to patients as they at least hear about this? What should they do uh, and why should they do it? The The key to that is to have a physician um, who is involved in their care, who is involved in clinical trials. Because it's really only the physician that can sit down with the patient, become a partner with them, and decide, is being on a clinical trial the best thing for you? You know, we don't want uh, patients on clinical trials unless actually participating in that is going to be the best thing for them. I think that's something really important for your listeners to understand. And this is what clinical trials are about, offering something that might be a test um, and it might be a flip of a coin that decides whether the patient gets treatment A or treatment B. But the bottom line of that participation is that that is the very best option for that patient. Um, I will add that that it's also the, one of the reasons that uh, is absolutely essential to making it the best option for the patient is that the patient understands and values being in a clinical trial. So it's, it's about the doctor-patient relationship and both of them becoming partners to participate in research grounded in the fact that those treatment options provided by that clinical trial are the very best options for that patient. So that's really great. The, the other part of your question, though, is, you know, how do we bring more people into this? How do, we, how do we expand our ability to gain information from patients? Um, well, the world is, you know, we're, we're now linked by technology. We have a lot of new tools that are enable, enabling patients to directly get involved in research, maybe even if their doctor is not participating. One of the things that ASCO is working on that I'm very, very excited about as part of my president's theme is something um, that is very much in development, um, but is, at least for now, we're calling it the Patient Data Donor Registry. Um, this idea came to uh, me when I was sitting in the in the Department of Motor Vehicles, and I had to renew my license, and I said, signed up to be an organ donor. And then I realized, why can't we have our patients sign up to be a data donor? This is something that ASCO is going to make it possible for all of our patients to do directly, contribute their data, which could be incredibly valuable um, to the organization for use in research. Finally, you asked me about the very important issue of confidentiality, you know, and how do we make sure that our patients are always, always come first, that nothing we're ever going to do is going to put our patient at risk or use, use our relationship with our patients in an unprofessional or unethical way. Um, the first and foremost part of that is that the patient is in charge. 
you know, the patient decides after they hear the options from their doctor, the patient decides what they want to do. Everything has to be, you know, very clearly presented and they have to be in control of what they do or they don't want to do. If they don't want to be identified, they shouldn't be identified. Finally, I'm actually finding some patients who say, I don't care if you use my name. I'm happy to have my name associated with this. You know, just just do me a favor and make sure that you use my you use my contribution to the best possible way. Um, finally, I just want to say, you know, your your um, uh, listeners, um, some of whom might not be physicians or other professionals doing research, one of the absolutely crucial things that happens for any research that's done is we have something called an institutional review board. So anytime we're going to do uh, any research involving patients, there is an independent board that has no stake in the game whatsoever that reviews that research in very great detail and has to give permission in order for that research to go forward. And that is a, a, an absolutely crucial safeguard to make sure that um, any research that's done is done in a, in a very ethical way and in a way that puts the patient first. So I want to uh, pivot a little bit to your, uh, an area that you has been a central focus for you for, for many years, but in particular the last several years, and that is you know, your role in the National Clinical Trials Network of the National Cancer Institute and specifically leading uh, the Alliance for Clinical Trials and Oncology, which we've worked together on uh, for several years. But you've obviously uh, led that group and, and charted a course and, and moved it forward in very important ways over the last few years. So maybe for those who are not familiar with Alliance or the NCTN, can you just give people a, a sense of the importance of the National Clinical Trials Network and, and what it does and kind of how it works uh, in brief. Sure. So, you know, again, back in the late 1950s at the, at the beginnings, very beginnings of the uh, new field of medical oncology and chemotherapy, um, the uh, Congress, um, led by a, you know, spurred on by a uh, philanthropist, Mary Lasker, um, provided funding to the National Cancer Institute to conduct cancer clinical trials of new chemotherapy agents across many different institutions. Um, it was recognized that one hospital, one medical center, no matter how large, was not going to be able to gather enough patients of every different type to to properly study different treatments in a way that gave great um, assurance that the results were correct. So the funding began then in the, in the late 50s, and, and that network has, been, uh, has grown and grown over the years, but we have had funding from the U.S. Um, uh, uh, National Institutes of Health through the NCI to conduct cancer clinical trials continuously for almost 70 years. The groups have changed a lot over time, just like the field of oncology has changed over time. These publicly funded organizations now look at, a, at a, not only new chemotherapy agents, but how do you properly deliver surgery or radiation therapy? Um, how, do you, um, how do you manage um, the delivery of care in terms of health systems? 
um, in a in a way that really improves patients' chance of having successful successful treatment. Um, the the other point about this whole uh, publicly funded space is that the research done by the NCTN is not research that can be done by any other way. So, for instance, a huge amount of research, very, very important research is done by industry, the pharmaceutical industry, developers of new devices. Um, that kind of research is paid for by the industry that's going to benefit from it financially if the results turn out positive. The NCTN publicly funded research needs to focus on work that otherwise could not be done. So really good examples are maybe comparing two different drugs that are made by different companies and so wouldn't necessarily wouldn't be studied because the companies um, wouldn't be designing a study like that or the use of surgery in, in addition to some other type of treatment. Again, not something that uh, industry funding would, uh, would achieve. As you can imagine, the research then that's done by the NCTN tends to have extremely high impact when it comes to actually changing patient care because it tends to be, I think, more practical and more um, more informative to the routine day-to-day care of patients. So, so one of the things you touched on, and I think you know, you articulated the the clear need for a public venue to do uh, kind of uh, certain categories of clinical trials, uh, and I, and I agree with you, it's very very important. We've heard a lot of the news about you know the issue of industry and collaboration with industry. How do you balance? How do you see that balanced? And I'm sure this is something you deal with in your own research. You've dealt with over the years. Uh, you deal with an ASCO. You deal with uh, in Alliance and and elsewhere. And I know that Alliance and and others have many very productive collaborations with industry. So how do right. you how do you look at kind of the the double-edged part of it of um making it productive and ethical and high priority um and balancing all of that out? What are what what's the importance of that? How do you uh how do you navigate that? Yeah. So I can tell you specifically what we do in Alliance. We have um we have an expert scientific development team and uh, of which you are one of the leaders. <laughs> You're our leader of our, our lymphoma group. And um, the, the, the mission of those, the charge to those teams are to look at the, at the patients you are treating and design research that is the most important research for those patients with that particular type of cancer. And, you know, forget about who's going to pay for it. Forget about where it comes from. Just tell us what is the most important work to be done in the field. Then once we have that list, that wish list of these are the studies that that the committee feels are the most important, then what my group does, my office does, is ask, okay, how are we going to get that research accomplished? And then it is a discussion of, is it something that only public funding will allow us to do? Um, if that's the case, then that's the direction we go. We, we, uh, we try to get it funded through the National Cancer Institute funds. If it's something that the public sector should be funding because, you know, they, they, they stand to benefit greatly from the results of the research and, um, frankly, using 
public funds to do something that probably should be the responsibility of the supporting uh, industry is not the best, I think, use of our of our public funds. And if, so, if that's the answer, then we we you know engage with the industry sponsors and 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 bring them to the table to have them support the work. It is very much a public private partnership. The thing that keeps us the most honest, frankly, is are two things. Number one, the scientific committees develop their research not based on any kind of relationship with companies, but based on what they think is absolutely the best for the patients. And then number two, the the freedom or the the uh, one of the enormous benefits of being publicly funded is we are not beholden to the industry sector to do our research. We we have that option and, and can use that to make sure that what we're doing is to patient advantage, not necessarily, certainly not primarily to the advantage of an industry partner. You know, it works out that way a lot of the time, which is there's nothing wrong with that. Um, we want to see a very healthy and active and productive um, pharmaceutical industry making lots of new wonderful drugs. We just want to make sure that what we're doing for patients is has its 100% priority what the patients need. So so what is, and, and we've been through times over the last several years where this public enterprise, which, you know, we think is really, really important, uh, has uh, sometimes been under-resourced. Um, what can, what do you think that people that care about this area, patients, uh, how can people advocate for support for the National Clinical Trials uh, Network and and other areas to make sure that this uh, venue continues to thrive and to grow and is able to do the things that are needed to to uh, to advance the the key issues uh, in in cancer care and research. Yeah. So so um, we've been through some rocky times lately. Um, you'll remember the sequester when that hit our budgets when that hit the government budgets that hit us incredibly hard. Our research group itself took a 20% reduction in funding at the point when, and it was just so tragic because there was, uh, you know, we're in a time of such great advance in science that the the our need for clinical trials for uh, more and more to test these exciting new agents is greater than it ever has been. So, you know, a few years back, we hit some really, really hard times. Um, and the number of patients we were able to put on these publicly funded clinical trials decreased dramatically. Um, from a, a total throughout the entire United States for the network of about 29,000 a year to, to about 18,000 a year. So really a, a, a commensurate reduction in the patients we could actually study along with the um, budget, budget loss. Um, over the last three years, however, thank goodness, the Congress has increased funding to the National Cancer Institute. We saw another funding increase this year. We still haven't made up for all the ground we lost um, with those bad years, but at least we're heading to stability now instead of <laughs> instead of the decline that we had. So we're very grateful for that. Um, you know, we just 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 um, 
really grateful for the advocacy of our uh, our patients and uh, other communities that support cancer research um, that we've seen these increases over the last couple of years. We very much hope they continue. So we're we're drawing toward the end of our time, but I just want to ask you one one more question. As somebody who's been you know really leading the cancer care and cancer research area and is spending a lot of time uh, looking forward as to what's needed and where things are going, maybe just a, a minute or two on kind of your your vision or your expectation. What what should patients expect uh, over the next five years or so as far as cancer care? Uh, changing because I think people, you know, every every day there's a new article, something new in the news about this and that, and obviously some of these are real breakthroughs. Some of these have a long way to go. But how how what should patients and families look forward to, and where and and where are things going in in cancer care at, at kind of a high level? What do you how do you think it's going to be different in the next few years? So we've been very lucky to see over actually the last um, 10, almost 15 years that the mortality from cancer in the United States has been falling. Very, We're making progress very slowly. We're, uh, it's not entirely clear why we're making progress. You can't point to one drug or one new treatment and say, yep, that's what did it. Um, but Overall, our understanding of tumor biology is le- is translating down the line to decrease death from cancer. So that is just wonderful. Cancer is so many different diseases, um, and they're all different, and they're all treated differently, and they all affect human beings very differently. So it's kind of hard to be global in saying what's going to happen. But I think almost any patient... Um, with cancer is going to see new studies, new opportunities for treatment that we haven't had before. Now, are all those going to work? We wish, but certainly not. Um, But many of them will. And that's the way we make success. And that's why we've started to see reductions in, in morbidity. So I think, you know, the bottom line is it is a, it's a very hopeful time. There's lots of wonderful new research coming for every individual patient. It's hard to know exactly what it will mean. Um, but, you know, things are brighter than they ever have been. And if we continue the way we are, they will continue to get better every single year. Well, I want to thank you for for joining us today. It's been a great discussion, and I want to also thank you um, not only for your support of uh, our programs at Wild Cornell and things we've tried to do over the years, but also just uh, your efforts and support on behalf of uh, of patients in the research field in your various roles. I mean, when you stop and think, and I hope you stop and think about this sometimes when you when you talk about the number of patients that have gone on Alliance trials, as an example, over your time, you know, being in the range of hundreds of thousands, and then you think about the knowledge that came from those hundreds of thousands of patients, um, you know, it's really literally millions of people that your work one way or another has touched. So that's, it's really obviously a great thing. And uh, I hope uh, our listeners can appreciate that. So thank you very much for, for uh, being here and sharing your thoughts with us today, Monica. Oh, that's so kind, John. Thank you so much. And uh, it's great talking to you and it's great working with you.
Great. Well, I want to uh, encourage our audience to please uh, go ahead and download, subscribe, rate, and review CancerCast. You can uh, find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or online at wildcornell.org. We also encourage you to write to us at cancercast at med.cornell.edu with questions, comments, or any topics you'd like to see us cover more in depth in the future. That's all today for CancerCast, conversations about new developments in medicine, cancer care, and research. I'm Dr. John Leonard. Thanks for tuning in. If you or a loved one is undergoing cancer treatment, rehabilitation medicine can help with recovery and ease painful side effects. Listen to Back to Health, while Cornell Medicine's podcast series dedicated to rehabilitative medicine to learn more about the ways psychiatrists can help. All information contained in this podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes. The information is not intended nor suited to be a replacement or substitute for professional medical treatment or for professional medical advice relative to a specific medical question or condition. We urge you to always seek the advice of your physician or medical professional with respect to your medical condition or questions. While Cornell Medicine makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast, and any reliance on such information is done at your own risk. Participants may have consulting, equity, board board membership, or other relationships with pharmaceutical, biotech, or device companies unrelated to their role in this podcast. No payments have been made by any company to endorse any treatments, devices, or procedures. And while Cornell Medicine does not endorse, approve, or recommend any product, service, or entity mentioned in this podcast, opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not represent the perspectives of Weill Cornell Medicine as an institution.